All right, I am back from the NHL entry draft in Vancouver. I had very safe travels, thank you very much, and a wonderful time. A big shout out to my host who accommodated me, Ainsley Scott. Thank you so much for putting me up. It was, I had a wonderful time staying with you. A few good drinks, a lot of good food, and a lot of good times. Uh, so thanks again, Ainsley, that was great. So just doing a little bit of recap on what happened at the draft, I think there's gonna be a lot of other podcasts that We'll go over what happened throughout the entry draft. Uh, our previous episode, Cam Robinson and I went through the first round. So I just kind of want to do some general observations and thoughts. Uh, so first of all, uh, something that I noticed this year for the first time, I don't know if this is the first time it ever happened, but uh, I noticed that the songs for the players went up to seem to be a little bit different than what the draft kind of usually plays. And I found out later that the players were allowed to choose their own theme song for when they got picked, which I think is super cool. Very amazing. Uh, you can check my timeline. I retweeted a tweet that had a list, a playlist of all the players. Not everyone picked a song, which I don't get, but uh, the ones that did, uh, I thought that was very cool. Uh, a great way to really enjoy your little moment. Uh, another takeaway I had from the draft, and every year I've noticed this, and it, it irks me a little bit more. I think if, uh, hey, Gary Bettman, if you're listening, uh, when the very last player of the draft is about to be picked, pretty much all the teams are either packing up their books and draft picks or are already packed. And like as soon as the name is announced, they're, it's like they the roaches when the lights turn on and they all scatter. It was really bad this year. I noticed that the player was having a hard time fighting his way through the crowd of people trying to leave so that he could get up on stage. And then he gets up on stage and no one's paying attention. Everyone's trying to leave. Uh, it's really disrespectful. Uh, and I really think that the NHL teams should show that player who's picked last in the first round all of the same respect that every other player gets when they're selected in the first round. And that's their moment on stage. Uh, in front of the world, and uh, and allow them to really soak it up. Um, that's just my thought. Um, another thing I noticed about the draft this year, <clears throat> and being in Vancouver, in the previous three drafts that I've been to, in the uh, lower levels of the arena, the media were allowed to go back and forth between the media riser, which faces the draft stage, and they have uh, like a media lounge with a restaurant or whatever that provides food for the media, and, and they got a conference kind of room with all the little podiums that you see the, the players getting interviewed at. There's little stations throughout the room. They're usually in a pretty big room. Uh, but this year, the media had to go, they weren't allowed to go under underneath the concession level they had to travel through the concession level and the media place is at the other end of the draft by the draft stage so when any member of the media wanted to go from the riser to the interview room they had to walk through the concourse level uh, and through the the fans and it was pretty well attended especially on friday night good job vancouver uh but i thought that was kind of really inconvenient it wasn't a problem for me because i can pass through and no one looks twice at me or cares who I am. But I saw guys like Elliot Friedman who were, were just getting bombarded by fans um, and Darren Dreger and whatnot. It, it's, it was really difficult for them to, to travel around. And um, Ainsley was telling you that it's the, the, the arena there is a little bit smaller and it, it's probably a logistical thing more than anything. Okay, fine. I'm not sure why they didn't put the interview room behind the media riser so that all the media had to do is just walk out the exit behind the media riser and and bam, you're there. 
that's just my thought. Another observation I had on the draft last year, uh, there was a, a run on centers. And if you want to say they were picked ahead of where they should have been or where they were projected at the very least, I think that's fair. Players like Kop Kinyemi and Barrett Hayton jumped to mind. And uh, there was a surplus of defense in that year. And guys like Noah Dobson kind of, you can say he went like 11th. You guess you could say he dropped a little bit. This year, I, I kind of thought there was a similar instance where um, the emphasis was on D. There were three D picked in the top 10 in a forward heavy draft. There was really only one defenseman that was head and shoulders above the rest. That's Bowen Byram. Uh, but Maurice Sider and Philip Broberg went a little bit higher than a lot of people thought they were. I, I did not have a problem with Detroit picking Sider. Uh, I think that was a great pick. I'm, I'm a really big fan of him. Not as sold on Broberg. Um, and considering Edmonton's not so great at developing prospects, they'll probably prove me right there. Uh, so anyways, I just thought that was an interesting little observation that depending on uh, team, not team, but like league-wide emphasis on player position, the supply and demand can make players become more valuable or move up in the draft than uh, all things other being equal. Uh, speaking of drafts, let's uh, let's move on a little bit. The import draft is coming up on Thursday. And this is something that, as a fan, I guess, uh, I've always just been really interested to understand the inner workings of the CHL import draft a lot more. So one of my agendas at the NHL draft this year was to talk to a lot of people uh, and try and come up with a better understanding of how the CHL import draft works. And I talked to some people who would know. I didn't get a chance to meet any player agents. I don't really know any. Uh, I was hoping to get introduced to one, but that just never really timed out well. So I talked to people like uh, OHL general manager who I bumped into at the draft, um, Shane Malloy from HockeyProspect.com, a Carolina Hurricane scout that I know who's based here in Kingston. He and I had a little chit-chat about it. Uh, and a number of other prospect writers um, as well. And pretty much everyone said the same thing to me. It is not a draft. It's basically arranged by the agents. So the NH, the players that have their NHL rights owned and the agents dictate where they want those players to go. Um, some teams do a little recruiting uh they do scouting, but they all talk to the agents. Some of them talk to the NHL general managers and, and ask them, we recommend your player comes and, and plays in our city. And this is what we'll do to develop him. I can promise him, you know, these minutes, he can play with such and such player uh, and so on and so forth. So I didn't really shed a whole lot of light to it because I, maybe because I just don't have a lot of trust and credibility in the industry with, with the people who I'm, I'm, I was speaking to. Uh, but they did provide me the information with me that they could, and it did kind of put things into a little bit more perspective. Um, so that being said, the import draft is coming up on Thursday, which is the 29th-ish, something like that. And anyways, the import draft can contain players who were picked in the NHL entry draft or who would be eligible for future drafts as well. And uh, depending on team needs and, and when they want to be peaking, they might want to pick either younger players, like the Kingston Frontenacs are going to take an 0-1 in the first round, I was told. Or if you're a team that uh, you think, hey man, we got pretty good core here, we could land ourselves a superstar at the import draft and then maybe uh, load up with a trade uh, here and there. And who knows what could happen. So here's a couple of players who are at the top of the list. 
uh, for names to watch that might come over in the import draft next week to play next year. First one would be more at Cider. He was picked by Owen Sound the previous season, but didn't report. I haven't done enough due diligence and research on this, but I do believe they gave up, they relinquished his rights, which would make him eligible for the draft again. So that would tell me, he said, thank you, but no thank you to Owen Sound. I'm I'm not coming. So they released his rights and acquired someone else or, or will be acquiring someone else, uh, which probably means he's not going to get drafted. However, he was, was picked by Detroit. So if they decide they want to play him in the CHL, uh, they and their agents might be able to put him in a in a place that's right near their backyard, and then they can keep an eye on him uh, on a team that's in good situation and does good developing. Less likely, I think, and Cam and I talked about this on our last episode. Less likely, I think, he plays in the CHL because he is playing pro hockey in Europe already. I, I wouldn't recommend him come and play in the AHL. However, that is an option. Uh, in my opinion, it's and Cam and I kind of talked about this the shl would probably be his his best course of action next player on the list philip broberg i spoke about him he's an edmonton oilers draft pick they got a team at edmonton it's a distinct possibility that this kid comes on over the silly pod colson of course may get selected but he's uh under contract for two years in the khl so you just go ahead and scratch that one off the list uh victor soderstrom defenseman uh i think maybe slipped a little bit. I was a little bit surprised, quite frankly, that Broberg was picked before him. It's not an egregious arrangement, but uh, I would have done it the other way around personally. Uh, He's an Anaheim Ducks prospect. Um, I could see him coming over as a possibility. Uh, And then you get a little bit further down the first draft, uh, first round, I should say, Vili Hainola, Tobias Bjornfort, and Simon Holmstrom, two defensemen and a winger, um, are all other possibilities that, that might come on over. The other thing that I did at the NHL entry draft this year, which I do every year, is I float around and I talk to a couple of people who I meet and I make connections and I maybe set up some interviews for the future. Uh, But I certainly want to spend some time talking to uh, people who I don't normally have access to as easily as I do at the draft. And uh, I'm pretty pleased with the the list of people who I was able to... uh, uh, track down this year. Um, <clears throat> it was easy to talk to Russ Cohen and Shane Malloy, who were the are the now the four former hosts of Hockey Prospect uh, Radio. They are moving on after 14 solid years. So I had an opportunity to sit down at the kitchen table at Ainsley's house with both of them, and pick their brain on scouting, and targeted specifically for people like you who are fantasy GMs and are into scouting your fantasy team and, and maybe watch prospects in your in your rink, your local rink, the AHL, or you subscribe, you watch them online or whatever you do. Um, so I asked them some questions that I thought would be really helpful with that particular strategy in mind. The amateur scout watching uh, how to what to look for in players what are the important traits and what do they look like and what are some potential pitfalls that the amateur could fall into um derek numerer anthony mignoni craig button mike cagello jd burke from elite prospects and the piece de resistance would be bob mckenzie from tsn joins me as well so this episode i'm going to start with my interview that i had with shane malloy and russ cohen and the rest of the interviews will be uh, to follow. Some of them are, are team-centric. Some of them are just general prospect-related. Uh, so there's a lot of really interesting content coming up. And uh, starting with Shane Moy and Russ Cohen, hope you enjoy the interview. 
All right, so interview time, live from the draft to tape. In between rounds one and two, I got a chance to sit down with Hockey Prospect Radio hosts uh, Shane Malloy and Russ Cohen. Boys, thanks for thanks for joining me and giving me a couple minutes for the podcast. Good yeah. to have you both back. Absolutely. Yep. All right, so round one's in the books. Um, let's do a little, uh, not a review of that, because there'll be plenty of that by the time I get this posted up, but let's talk a little bit about um, scouting prospects, uh, or maybe not scouting, but analyzing prospects for people who are in fantasy leagues and, and want to know. Uh, so right off the top, I'm, I'm wondering, what advice do you have for the amateur hockey enthusiast or fantasy GM that likes to watch junior games, that likes to um, scout for his fantasy team? Um, what are some, some preps or some tips you have on how they can assess players? Well, I think first off is, you know, you look at from a standpoint of hockey sense, that's, you know, the ability to process information under duress and make the correct decision consistently. And that's very challenging to see because sometimes it's not flashy at all. It's like something simple like a give and go in an appropriate time in the neutral zone to allow, say, it's a centerman pass going to give and go to a winger, being giving them the time and space, and then you can jump to a hole. So there are some little things like that, but from you know from a fantasy standpoint, I always look at which NHL teams have the best drafting and developing success, and I gravitate towards those teams for their players because they just have a higher percentage of actually playing in the NHL, more than 200 games. So to me, it's like, sure, I you can get caught in watching and getting sucked into the sexy, sexy skills of a player, but it doesn't always translate. So I just go, I'll go take a look because I'm in, I'm in a keeper league myself in a GM sim league, and I'll look at, the, I'll go and do research on which team's consistently get the best always get players into the nhl okay you touched on something right there that's really interesting that was my follow-up question um so it's easy to watch players in junior and it's easy to see guys be successful scorers at junior uh in the chl or um, in ncaa how can you project if that is going to translate to the nhl because there's lots of examples of guys that scored 50 goals 100 points in their final seasons of junior hockey, and then were never able to recreate that either at the NHL level or, in some cases, even the pro level. Um, what do you got on I that? I can answer from the NCAA perspective. So, Kale McCarr, Frozen Four. Even if you had never seen him before, you would realize he did everything for that team. Even though he brought the puck up the ice, he was making all the big plays, he was looking to set up the plays, he was a point guard on that team. And so when you saw all of that with his skating, with his shot, you could tell there would be very little transition time for him to do the same thing in the NHL. And of course, if he was, it, it does matter who you're paired with and it does matter who you're on the ice with, but any player on the Colorado Avalanche would have been better than who he was, who he had on his team. So to me, you could watch him and that's a particular case where he's just so overwhelmingly good there was not going to be any problem with transition. It was going to be seamless. Uh, you know, another example for this specific draft is Cole Caulfield, who went for the Montreal Canadiens. And when you watch him play, there are certain guys who score goals who, if from a specific area, um, it's a, they shoot from a specific way. It's, you know, it's, it's obvious and, and they telegraph their intentions. Where Caulfield, he will shoot from different angles, uh, use different types of so- shot selections. He will change his speeds. 
heel wheel, and he's really great at presenting his, his stick. So if you're watching a game, and generally we gravitate to the player who has the puck, but when you watch him on a line, don't just watch the guy with the, the centerman with the puck say it was Hughes. Watch how Caulfield finds time and space, adjusts his body, and then presents a stick. The best goal scorers always know where they adjust their stick, the angle of their stick, so that the passer can get them the stick and they can release quickly. And he's able to be very deceptive in terms of actually shooting and not telegraphing his shot, but also using the defenseman as screens and changes his angles to make it more challenging for the goaltender to read it coming off a stick. And I have one more thing about offensive players. So just like in the NBA, I watch and see what they do without the puck. Because there are some guys that they need the puck or they can't create and they can't open things up for their teammates. There are some guys like that. And so you're looking for the ones that can score but also can open up other things. And just like when an NBA team is sort of doing a switch and the guy doesn't have the puck and he's on one side, he knows the other guy should move, he'll go and he'll orchestrate that, get on the other side, and maybe he's just going to get the puck to make another pass. You know, Then you have a guy that can shoot and pass and he's going to get more points he's not just going to be a goal scorer because it's nice to have goal scorers in fantasy but if i could have a goal scorer that does pick up some assists like rick nash had some seasons where like he had 20 30 goals and maybe like six eight assists like it was you know that bad towards the end yeah are there any other um signs or tells that you can look for or notice in a player that's having a really good offensive season in his draft year or his final year of junior and you're just like yeah see that's just not going to work at the pro level well, all those all those sexy dangles, all those sexy plays, there's you're not going to get away with that at the NHL level. An NHL defenseman is not going to be fooled by that. So when they talk about the north-south funneling to the net, it's the players that can funnel things to the net and make plays in traffic. Find the guys who can make plays in traffic and can score in traffic because that's what's going to happen in the NHL. You look at the Stanley Cup final with like Bo Meester and Pareko, they just take away time and space. That's the the... The most valuable commodity in the NHL or in hockey in general is time and space. How do you create it and how do you take it away? So from an offensive perspective, how do they create time and space for themselves? You know, how do they find seams? You know, how do they use the give and go? It's all quick movements. Um, you know, from that standpoint, um, do can they draw defenders towards them to open up time and space for their line mates? To, and then, you know, in that opportunity, there is points that can come from that. So those are just little things that you have to pick up. The other thing about goal scoring Look for the goal scorers that have, I call, clutch goals. The guys who have the most first goals, game-winning goals, and insurance goals. Because that's trans- translatable. You look at Jordan Eberle in his draft year. 56% of his goals were either a first goal, a game-winning goal, or an insurance goal. So, for me, that's really important. So, if you're looking at it from a statistical standpoint, go take a look at those three columns and then what's the percentage of their goals that come from that? What's the percentage of goals that come from five on five? Because that's really important. There's tons of guys in junior who rack up goals on the power play, but you're not likely to be the first unit power play guy. I want five on five production. Right. So that's and, and to piggyback off that, so if you look at someone like John Beecher, right? I I interviewed him. First thing I asked him is, How much power play time did you get? Because you know, I saw him play three, four games live and I've watched other games, and he goes, very little to none. So if you look at his production, that is all five on five. And then figure out that he's not even on the first two lines. So then his minutes aren't going to be there. So you have to look at opportunity. 
Sometimes in juniors, guys get ridiculous, and Shane has always pointed this out, ridiculous opportunity. Like the amount of minutes they get will never be the amount of minutes they get in the NHL. Longer on the ice, more opportunity you have to get points. Right. So the person who's just in a fantasy hockey league and has a, a day job, and where do they find those stats? Because they're not on elite <laughs> prospects. You, you can't get them off the team sites. And the CHL hides them. They don't yeah. Well, no, well they the don't CHL does have that. Like it, I actually have found sites where they actually show, they tell you. They actually do even have it on their website. So if you look on the, on the WHL, OHLQ website, and you look on their stats, they actual they actually will have that. They'll give you game-winning goals and stuff. They won't give you time on ice. There's well, a few no, things no, they, they won't give you time it. on ice, but they'll give yeah. you first goals, insurance goals, game-winning yes, goals. Yes, they will do that. They'll give you that. Well, it's there, right. right? So there's like, for me, because it's about the first goal is the most important goal. Yeah. It's not the game-winning goal. because right. sometimes it is. Because the first, if you score the first goal of the game... Your team now has a 70% or higher percentage chance of winning the game. Yeah. You know, there's like all of a sudden all the pressure's on the other team. Like I want somebody who understands that you got to put the puck in the net first and have the other team chase. You know, and that those type of goal scoring is really transferable. Here's an example. <clears throat> Mitch Wall, who was drafted in the second round by the Calgary Flames, was more of a playmaking center, but he had scored 20 goals. It's important to know who he scores them against. You know, so he scored 20 goals, nine of them were at home against the Portland Winterhawks, who at that time were the worst team in the CHL. So 45% of his goals at, like, were against a bad team at home in the most, like, that's the most advantage you could possibly have. Look for guys who, like, if you're looking through the box scores, look for guys who score on back-to-back games and, and produce points on back-to-back games and three and four nights in the CHL because on the road. Because those are the guys, that's the most duress you're ever going to face as a player. And if you're a top player, you know you're, you're tired and you're going against the top D and the top lines. So if you can produce under those circumstances, there's a better chance of that transferring to the pro level. And then also there's guys where you can look at them and say, how good is this guy's team? And maybe I'm looking at this one player and he's got 15, 20 more points, but his team may be worlds better than the other guy who doesn't have that point production. But again, that guy may be passing the puck and never getting it back. <clears throat> so the context of their stats is, is very relevant. Yeah. Um, okay, so when I talk to a lot of people about I, what is important attributes when assessing a player, the two that always come up at the top of the list um, are skating and smarts. Um, so skating, let's talk about that one first. So is there a difference between players who have bad skating uh, assigned to their profile because of mechanics or just where they're at in their development? And, um, and can you fix either of those deficiencies? It depends. You can. Um, some guys obviously have may- maybe have mechanical issues, and that's much harder to fix. Um, or you could just simply be a player who just doesn't have the core power to be able to generate that extra pop in his two and three step quickness or to be able to you know, pull away in his foot speed. So, I mean, that is something you have to look at. The challenge is, is if I have a player that has a profile, like he's a bad skater, but he's already physically mature, it's just the percentage chance of that improving is less likely. I'm not saying he won't, but I always edge on the side of caution. Like I'm not one that takes high risks in my, in my fantasy pool. I want the highest percentage chance of that player playing. So if it's a he's a poor skater and he's already physically developed, I tend to shy away from that. 
Uh, but so you look at Nolan Foot, for example, like he still has like he's big, but he's really actually quite lanky because we saw him yesterday. Yeah, he is. Right. So and he admitted when he was talking to us, I really need to develop, you know, my core because I really need to be able to pop in that two and three step quickness. You know, so there's that. It's a risk. Like I tend to shy away from guys who are not very good skaters. I can give you one guy that I watched develop. Travis Sandheim. So I always go to development camp, and I always go to preseason games. People sometimes think preseason games are a waste, but I don't think so because if you see a young player and they're playing against some NHLers, there's something to be gained. But Travis Sandheim had a stride problem. Even though it didn't look like he was a bad skater, and he certainly was getting from A to B even when he would play in preseason or in a development camp, but it just wasn't going to make him not elite, but like a top four. And... Over a period of about a year and a half, it really improved. And now the guy that you see now has a really good skating stride. And, of course, he's gotten stronger, so that has something to do with it too. But, like, the the bare minimum was there for him, and everything else was there, you know, that you want in a defenseman. But it was that other part, and they did fix it. So for the untrained eye, what would the difference between lack of development and poor mechanics uh, look like? What would be some, some obvious things? Well, I mean... I I think from like if you have an untrained eye, I would just simply, unless you want to learn how to like scout skating, I would just simply err on the side of caution and go with the better skater who has good hockey sense. Yep. Honestly, like it's just a, it's about risk assessment okay. and taking the chance. So like you know, we're both in like keeper league pools, um, and you know I look at it from okay. I have so many assets that I can acquire players, you know, working, looking at the draft, for example. Well, I just can't, I don't have seven rounds. So we, yeah, I just can't afford to make mistakes. I need two or three players every draft. So I will just err on the side of caution and go with the players that I know are, have good, are good skaters and have good hockey sense and not take the risk unless it's really far down the line. I'll give you a guy. So... Kevin Hayes, when he got to the Rangers, his hockey sense wasn't very good. If you look up Kevin Hayes offside on Google, you'll see a play where he looked like he was offside like a minute and a half before anybody even got into the zone. It was like he was there and he's like, where are my teammates? So Kevin Hayes, they did work on his hockey sense and good coaches can do that and they can prep him. And you look at the Kevin Hayes you see now, he doesn't make that many mistakes, but he used to. Okay, um, so picking the player that has better hockey sense over the player that has better skating, that was the other attribute that I talked about. Yep. How do you recognize hockey sense? Well, movement without the puck. What does he do without the puck? Where does he sit if he's on the power play, on the power play? If, if he's not getting the puck, does he move? Does he ever move? Does he change? Does he rotate? You've got to look at guys that aren't just going to just sit there and wait for their teammates to make something happen for them. You look for guys that, again, it's like in other sports, he's got to get open. So how's he going to do it? And sometimes you see that on power play. Sometimes you see the guy go from one side to the other or high to low. Maybe that's not the way they set it up to beginning. But again, with the other team, if they're setting the umbrella or the box or whatever, you have to overcome that. So you're looking for the guy who's smart enough to overcome that so then he gets into better scoring positions. All right. Cool, man. Thanks so much for your time, boys. I think we got to get uh, we gotta get going back to the draft for round two. Back at it. Let's do it. 
So that completes my interview with Russ and Shane of the draft. And as I said at the beginning, I am now back in Ontario, home from the draft, away from the big city of Vancouver and the and the bright lights of the NHL entry draft. And on that note, one final thanks to Ainsley for hosting me and sharing this song with me. Uh, it is Gary Clark Jr., Bright Lights, Big City. See you on the next episode.